Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we uh, continue our series on Bethany Values. Uh, foundation of kind of how we act in ministry, things we choose to do in ministry, and kind of what shapes our church culture. And today we're talking about loving community. The 80s was when uh, I was a young adult. I know I've been lying about my age for a long time here. But in the 80s, I was a young adult, and uh, it was a great era for TV and movies. And so I was looking back on sort of the top 25 movies of the 80s. Number one, believe it or not, was The Empire Strikes Back. I'm not a Trekkie, but many of you probably enjoyed that. Die Hard, you know, with Bruce Willis. And yes, it is a Christmas movie. You got White Christmas, and you've got Die Hard, the two great Christmas movies of all time. The Princess Bride, kind of a chick flick, which I did record lately for us to watch, babe. Back to the Future... The Breakfast Club, probably not a Bethany movie, but a pretty good movie. And I was scrolling from 25 to 1, and, I, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking Rambo is going to be like in the top five, because I didn't find it all the way up to number, and it's not even in the top 25. So no Rambo or Rocky, but those were the greatest movies of the 80s. On the TV front, you got MacGyver, you know, who kind of gets in difficult situations, and he could kind of perform brain surgery with a Swiss Army knife. You got Magnum P.I., you got the Cosby Show, which we all thought was a great family show until we found out that Bill Cosby had some issues. And then you've got number one. Anyone know what it is? Cheers. Number one show of the 80s, and it's what I want to talk about. A sermon about cheers, yes. It's a Boston bar scene. And Sam is the owner of this Boston bar named Cheers. And he's a former professional baseball player. He's a relief pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. And after his career, he bought this bar, or he opened a bar named Cheers, and he's the bartender. And every day, a collection of regulars pull up to the bar stools, and we're all introduced to their lives. Remember Norm and different people there? And the song for the show, sort of this little tagline, you want to be where everybody knows your name. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Sociologists refer to places like Cheers as a third place in people's lives. First place is home. Second place is the workplace. Third place is the next choice that you make in your life to find social interaction, to make friends, to connect with people on some common ground, church is actually a third place for many of you. A third place. That's not just church talk. This is sociologists. They talk about this third place in people's lives. And it's incredibly important. In fact, this value has more to do with reaching people with the gospel other than biblical truth than just about anything we could talk about. It's important to give people the truth, to do it in a relevant way, but loving community has a huge impact on people converting to Christianity. Let me tell you about that. They deeply, or loving community in church, deeply influences people's connections to beliefs. Because when people have social connections with people of faith, 
and those social connections are very, very positive, it gives people permission to believe. People sort of say, they believe, so I guess I can believe, because they seem like normal people. Social connections have an incredible influence on religious conversion. Also, once people are converts to a religious movement, whatever that is, social connections help to maintain religious faith and commitment. Uh, Vanessa Cordopal had uh, sent us a study, I don't know, a couple years back. I, I, it was done in Canada. And it was about what made young people stay connected to faith through the difficult years of college and young adulthood. And the primary influencer was multiple older adult mentors for them as they left their family. Social connections helped maintain religious faith and commitment. And they help us to get there. Now, we would kind of agree with that just because we know that most Christians were raised in Christian families. Most Muslims were raised in Muslim families. Most Buddhists were raised in Buddhist families. So at its simplest level, we all sort of understand how important family and social connections are to religious conversion and faith. There's a man named Rodney Stark who wrote a book about this. And I believe his friend was John Loeffler. And they, they were two sociologists working on this. The book is called The Rise of Christianity. Now, I want you, this is so incredibly important, I want you to hear what they discovered. So he and his friend wanted to watch people convert to a new religious movement. So they're, they are of one religion, they're going to convert to a different religion, they wanted to watch the process. Not like when somebody would say a prayer of faith, they wanted to watch the whole process from start to finish. And they wanted to observe a, a, a movement from a, a very different religion to, a ver to another religion that was quite different. So they didn't want to see a, a Catholic become an evangelical or a Lutheran become a Catholic. Those are sort of all same camp movements. Now, we don't necessarily agree with Catholics about certain things. I, I married a Catholic girl, but we have differences theologically in, in, within Christendom. But we would say these different denominations are still all under the, the Christian umbrella. We have some things in common, the Bible, etc. They wanted to observe something that was very unusual, because that was what it would have been like in the first century to convert to Christianity. Christianity would have been a big leap for an awful lot of people because they were in Jewish cultures or Roman cultures. Jewish culture was very different than the early Christian culture, but yet came out of the same Old Testament. Roman culture was polytheistic, believed in many gods. So it was a tough sell. So they observed a small religious group that required what you would call a radical thought shift into what would be known as like a deviant religion. By deviant, I don't mean evil, I mean very different from what they came out of. Because that's what Christianity was in the first century. It was like a deviant religion. They found a group. It was led by Young Un Kim. It is called the Moonies, or the Unification Church. So they thought, the Moonies, joining the Moonies would be a lot like joining Christianity in the first century. It would be a radical shift away from Judaism or Roman culture. Here's what they found. Because I think we'd all agree that becoming a Moonie would be a big stretch for us, okay? 
I think you get to hand out flowers at the airport, but nonetheless, becoming a Mooney is a big stretch. Didn't they used to do that, meet you at the airport? Okay, I could be wrong. Here's what they found. They went to Mooney sermons, you know. They went to the big group event where people were, you know, hearing a lecture about the Unification Church. And what they discovered is when you went to Mooney lectures, nobody became a Mooney. The conversion rate was almost nothing. But here's what they found. The only converts, you can see it on the screen, to the Unification Church were those whose interpersonal attachments to members overbalanced their attachment to non-members. All right, you see that? This is actually profound. Put a look on your face like you see it as profound. That would help me. All right, thank, thank you, Jay. All right, so the only converts to this radical movement, the Moonies, which were like converting to Christianity in the New Testament era, pretty tough sell for a lot of people, were those whose interpersonal attachments to members overbalanced their attachment to non-members. So it would be like if, if, if the first section there were a group of people that I know, and all of you are the Moonies for just a moment, all right? You're all Moonies for just a moment. The rest of you aren't, I'm not gonna convert. But as soon as we start getting to a tipping point where I know more of you are Moonies than the rest of you, I'm much more willing to consider it because now it's the movement that I'm most connected to. That has a profound impact on conversion. There were 25 other studies, Rodney Stark mentions this, 25 other studies supported this view of the connection between sociology and religious conversion. Here's one you might be familiar with, because people might knock on your door. In Mormonism, and Mormonism we would consider sort of outside the Christian camp, it's technically a cult from a Christian viewpoint, when Mormons visit people's doors and they knock on a thousand doors, there's one convert. But those guys are in shape. Thousand doors, one convert. When Mormons go and visit a Mormon who has a friend or relative in their home and they go visit the home of a Mormon who's got a friend or relative there who's not a Mormon, 50% of the time that person becomes a Mormon. That's how important sociology is in religious commitment. Do you know what's also scary and fascinating about this? Once converted to becoming a part of the Unification Church or the Moonies, which we would say is a cult, looking back, they said, it's the beliefs that convinced us. Now, Rodney Stark and his buddy knew that wasn't true because they knew these people before they were converted. They watched the whole process, and these people were not the kind of people who were open to those beliefs. But the relationships were so powerful that once converted, they said it was the beliefs. Now, I just want you to, you know, come back to the Church of Jesus Christ and come out of the Moonies for a moment. Think of the implications for the church and the power of relationships in people's lives and what it takes for people to convert from one religious group to another or from non-belief to belief. And this issue was very impactful in the early church. I want you to turn to page 93 in your New Testament. So it's the book of Acts. So you get about uh, three quarters of the way through here. You're going to start over with the New Testament. It's going to start with page one, get to page 93. We're in the book of Acts, 
and it's Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So the early church has started, and the early church is exploding right before this passage. It's basically going to say that 3,000 people came to faith right away after that first famous sermon by the Apostle Peter. So you have 3,000 converts that one day, the day of Pentecost, and then there's a description here of how the early church functioned. And I want to look at that with you today. Chapter 2, verse 41, the book of Acts. So then those who had received his word, Peter, were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Just look at these phrases, the community involved. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. We'll talk about what was going on here because some have taken from Acts here that, that socialism is taught here. There's, there's something else going on here which I'll explain in a few moments. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house in their homes, having meals together, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and look at the result, having favor with all the people. This was such a powerful movement that as it was observed from the outside, everyone was thinking, this is pretty incredible. Not necessarily a part of it, but it's incredible. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're going to look at three quick points, and we're going to be on this first point for most of the time, so when I'm not through point one in 15 minutes, don't fret. I see fretting. The early church, while modeling loving community, grew organically and exponentially. Now I want to explain this passage a little bit, how it fits into the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 gives us the outline for the book basically. And in Acts 1.8 it says, you know, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And this is a geographical expansion of the gospel that he lays out. In Jerusalem, where the church started, Judea, where Jerusalem's located, Samaria, cross-culturally next to Judea, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So basically Jesus said, after his resurrection, the apostles are going to be witnesses starting in Jerusalem, and the movement will spread to the ends of the earth. And if you follow the book of Acts, the first half is basically the gospel spreading in primarily Jewish-connected territory. The second half is it spreading into Gentile territory. And at the end of the book, it's gone from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and some other places like that, and then to the ends of the earth, as Paul is actually on trial in Rome for the crime of preaching Jesus, basically. So that would have been the ends of the earth in their mind. So that's basically the outline of the book of Acts. It predicts the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and the book follows that schedule. Again, first half more Jewish, second half more Gentile. As the gospel spreads, Acts has six summary statements throughout the book before the author moves on to the next region the gospel's going to spread to. And in the middle of the first section, in the middle of where it's just in Jerusalem, Luke describes the behavioral nature of the early church, saying, 
this is how it functioned. These are the kinds of things that were going on. And it was wildly successful. And God blessed it in multitudes of ways. Miracles accompanied it. But God was adding to it every day people coming to faith in Jesus. And it was a significant sort of deviant religion from Judaism, the Jews' religion, or Roman culture. It was a significant change. Now when you look at this passage, if you were to play skeptic, and I know none of you are skeptics here, but if you were to play skeptic, you might say, well, there's no command here. There's no command here. But when you're looking at sort of hermeneutics and how to interpret scripture, sometimes descriptions are still meant to be prescriptions. Descriptions are meant to be prescriptive. It's Luke laying out, this is how the early church functioned, and that's one of the reasons it was wildly successful. God was able to bless it because that's how it functioned. In other words, that's how we should function as well. This is meant to be a template for Christian behavior in the church and how we function together. And community was a big part of its success and its attractiveness to the outside world which is why this is one of our values, loving community. We believe that, <laughs> we believe, we believe that loving and grace-filled relationships fill our need for connection. God has wired us to be connected to others, and they touch the heart of a broken world. It's a testimony to the world around us. Internally, it meets our need for connection. Externally, it meets needs for connection and with those open and looking for something that is true and real, it's a witness to them. Now, I could go on and on and on and give you illustration after illustration after illustration about how lonely people are in the world today. That even with all the social media stuff that's going on, in fact, possibly because of social media, people are actually lonelier because social media has been a poor substitute for real relationships. Relationships that are just online and don't connect person to person are not real relationships. And yet we kind of fool ourselves into thinking they are. COVID was actually a great test for the world on this issue. One of the, I was on the condo board when we were going through COVID where, where I live. I was on the condo board. And one of the concerns was when we were putting government restrictions on people meeting together was how were people, especially who were older and single, going to survive COVID because of the social distance that we were asked to have with each other? It was really hard on people. There's study after study, especially about men, because men, uh, I know that it's hard for many of us to admit this, but we're less relational than our female counterparts. Now, we're probably okay with that. But it's actually dangerous for men, especially men who aren't married and get older. We tend to die sooner because of that issue. There's a lot of really unhealthy things that happen because of isolation. And more and more and more in Western society, we are pulling away from friendships. We have fewer and fewer people we can really talk to and count on. And this value in our lives is more attractive than ever because of that. I want to look at the elements of the passage that relate to community. Just some of the words. They continually devoted themselves. This was habitual. They were together all the time to the apostles' teaching. Now, 
I, I just want to point out, they would not have had Bibles. They would not have had New Testaments. They might have had some Old Testament scrolls. But in this New Testament church, they would have been dependent upon the apostles and people who understood the apostles' teaching sort of leading them in that area because they didn't have their book of Acts yet. They would have had nothing yet. This is the beginning of the church. So they're, they're dependent upon the apostles' teaching. They're dependent upon some sort of teacher. They're together in community. Fellowship is mentioned. That's not just coffee time after church. It's sort of a sharing of our lives to the breaking of bread, which probably means communion, but not necessarily. But even if it did, communion in the early church took place at a meal, a feast together. It was part of a meal. You take a meal in community to prayer. Likely this was community prayer because everything else was. They were together with all things in common. They say, how did that happen? What's going on there? Because it does kind of look like, you know, everyone is sort of getting rid of their stuff and giving it to everyone. Here's what's going on there. And that's what, this is why I think we should care and take care of people in the body of Christ, but it doesn't mean we impoverish ourselves like it looks like they're doing to do that. Here's what's going on. Religious pilgrims had come to Pentecost from a whole bunch of countries. 15 or 20 countries are actually mentioned earlier in the chapter, I believe, or certainly in the book of Acts. They're coming from all over the Roman Empire. And as they get to Pentecost, this is one of the three key feasts for the Jews during their religious calendar. When they get there, uh, basically, uh, they're together, and Jesus is risen from the dead, and Peter gets up and preaches about it, and the Holy Spirit showed up in an incredible and miraculous way, and people heard this sermon in their own language. So the original gift of tongues, if you want to go there, is people were able to tell the gospel in the language of the hearer, that's what was going on. So people who were foreigners are hearing the gospel in their own language, and there was that day a mass conversion. There was a mass conversion. Thousands of people came to faith in Christ. And what happened right after that is because thousands of people came to faith in Christ, and most of them were pilgrims, most of them weren't from Jerusalem, they're from all over the Roman Empire, this new movement had broken out. And along with this movement were all kinds of miracles. I mean, people were being healed, there was this new phenomenon of people being able to speak in other people's languages to spread the gospel, and it was this incredible outpouring of God's Spirit. And so you've got Maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews that are in, well, actually, in some of these feasts, there could be a couple million Jews coming through in a week. But let's say there's hundreds of thousands at Pentecost, at a minimum, and thousands have come to faith in Christ, and thousands more are interested. Well, the Christians, the new Christians in Jerusalem are thinking, we have to keep this going. We can't let these people go back to their countries. We have to do everything we can to facilitate this movement of God and it's in that context that they became very generous. And they started selling off possessions to keep funding this ability for all these people to sort of, you know, Airbnb with them. That's what was going on. They're staying in Jerusalem when they otherwise would not have, and the local Jewish Christians are selling their assets to keep them together. They're sharing, they sold possessions Day by day, they're in the temple. They were still in the temple. They hadn't been kicked out of the temple, which they eventually would be. They were day by day in the temple with one mind. There was unity there. It says they're breaking bread from house to house. They're having their meals together. It literally says they're taking their meals together. Those are 
Luke's words, it was community, community, community. They were always with each other with gladness and sincerity of heart. Christians' needs were being met by other Christians. This movement was loving and generous and powerful internally and externally it was powerful as well because it says the conclusion is having favor with all the people. It, did, it didn't mean people agreed with Christianity. It didn't mean they wanted to be a part of it. But when the rest of the world, in Roman culture here and in Jewish culture in Jerusalem, when they saw this fledgling church and they saw the way people were taking care of each other and caring for each other, because you don't sell off your assets and put a bunch of people in your house unless it's from the heart, right? These are people they didn't even know. It wasn't relatives. We're sort of paid to love our relatives at some level. You know, keep them in your home and you kind of have a limit on it maybe or they have a limit. You know, when we go to visit our kids, Dee Dee and I are having the conversation, you know, how long can they handle us, you know? You know, we have that conversation. Well, they can handle her for about two weeks. They can handle me for about one week. Anyway, so, you know, you have the conversation. But when you're hosting a bunch of people you don't even know because you've all found Jesus together You don't do that unless you're sincere about what's going on. And the world saw that. And they had favor with everybody. This was a movement just around the corner waiting to be persecuted. Soon in the book of Acts, it's going to be debated whether it's a religio licita or a religio illicita in Latin in the Roman Empire. Is it going to be illegal or legal? That was a debate in the book of Acts. And Paul goes on trial over it. But before all of that controversy was created, people admired the early church, not because of the beliefs. They admired the early church because of what they saw people were willing to do for each other. It was magnetic. It was winsome. It was attractive. It was around the apostles' teaching that was the template. It wasn't community without boundaries. But the behavior spoke to people. Second, and this will just take a moment, Jesus recently predicted the potential impact of a loving community. You say, Acts isn't necessarily prescriptive. It doesn't, Luke doesn't say, hey, you all need to do this. But Jesus actually did say this was going to happen. And he did give a command around this. John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. Jesus spoke about this just, you know, 50 days before, roughly. So Jesus is ready to go to the cross. He's at the Last Supper. They've, you know, they've kind of done communion or they're in the process of doing communion. Judas is getting up and he's ready to leave and Jesus has indicated that things weren't going to go real well as it relates to Judas. So it's just in that moment that Jesus says this. When he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Then he says this, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said, this has to happen for the world to believe that what we believe is true and real. He predicted it. There he commanded it. 
In Acts 2, we see it being worked out. That's what Jesus had in mind. The early church grew organically as truth was spread. The truth would have been the resurrection and its implications. Miracles accompanied its spread. Loving community accepted, embraced, and took care of others, and the world noticed and approved. Later, we see other language that Paul uses about we uh, as Christians being a body, how we need each other and care for each other. So Jesus did predict this and commanded it. And third, loving community was intended to overcome a level of diversity beyond most church cultures today. Now, I'm not going to give you a scripture on this. I'm going to reference a couple of things that you all know are in the New Testament. But I want to make this point because this is what we're trying to undo. The church landscape today is very monolithic. I'd say less so in Canada, more so in the US, which is a lot of my experiences, but it's very monolithic at the local church level. The body of Christ is not monolithic. It's not the same. But many times its individual expressions are. All over North America, we have white churches, we have black churches, we have Asian churches, and within Asian churches, we have Chinese churches, we have Korean churches, we have Filipino churches. We have single group ethnic churches all over North America. We have middle and upper middle class churches. Really, for, for real. And we have poor churches. And we have multiple denominations, often that are based on one or two minor theological differences with the rest of the body of Christ. What we have done as the church We find our own, and we make a camp with them. And that is not what the early church was. That is not what the early church was intended to be. That's not what we're intended to be. In the early church, listen to the descriptions that you see over and over as Paul writes epistles to the early church, and he describes people. He says, you know, you're going to have Jews and Gentiles in the same church. You're going to have slaves and free people in the same church. Now, just those four words, and many other words are used, but just those four words, I want you to think about the insurmountable obstacles the early church had to try to overcome. If we were to do that today, and we had slavery in North America, we'd have churches for slaves and churches for the rest of the people. That's the way the North America is right now, and it's wrong. It's not a witness to the world about what we believe. What is a witness to the world is when you can take groups of people who would never otherwise know or love each other and you see them connected together in a body, loving each other, taking care of each other, that's a witness to the world. Because only the gospel does that. Only the gospel helps us recognize the value in people who are not like us, who are different, that we otherwise might not be friends with and might not know. Think about those four groups. Two of those groups couldn't organize a potluck together. Jews and Gentiles? They can't even agree on food. Talk about us trying to have a nut-free environment in the kitchen. Try having Jews and Gentiles have a potluck together and deal with bacon and all kinds of those little tiny sausages that have pork and all kinds of issues. Think about those churches trying to to agree on church leaders and you've got people in the early church where the slaves actually had greater spiritual maturity than the slave owners. And they're voting on elders. Those would have been real conversations in the first century. Think about that. 
Christianity grew among the slave population. And when you think slave population, you think that's a little extreme, Paul. No, most of the people in some cities in Rome were slaves at times. Like half the population were slaves. So the early church grew among the poor. So you've got churches where there are more slaves than free people, and you're having church elections about who should be leading based on their spiritual maturity. Think about the conversations that would have happened. The testimony of the church to a lost world is strengthened as people love each other who otherwise wouldn't even like each other. And yet they have Jesus in common. And they become knit together and committed to each other in incredible ways. Just a few apps as we close. One, never underestimate the power of loving community or the third place. Now I realized when I was giving those illustrations earlier about sociology impacting spiritual conversion, some of you are thinking, well that kind of ignores the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. It's both, it's always both. We talked about cultural relevance last week and its impact on on churches moving forward. It's always all of it. It's cultural relevance and it's God and his spirit. It's always all of it. There's a sociological impact on conversion and only God saves people. You can't save anyone. But there is a sociological connection to how open people are. You know who does it best? AA. I'm not talking about AA as the church. I'm talking about AA as a sociological institution. Gordon MacDonald shares the following story about visiting a small group of men and women at an AA meeting. He said he had visited the group because he has friends who are recovering alcoholics, as do I, and he wanted to see for himself what they were talking about. Here's what he found. One morning, Kathy, I guessed her age at about 35, joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude she must have been Hollywood beautiful at 21. And now her face was swollen, her eyes were red, her teeth were rotting, her hair looked unwashed and uncombed for who knows how long. She said, I've been in five states in the past month. I've slept under bridges several nights. I've been arrested. I've been raped. I've been robbed. Now she's crying. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. But I can't stop drinking. I can't stop. I can't. Next to Kathy was a rather large woman named Marilyn, sober for more than a decade or a dozen years, actually. McDonald writes, she reached with both arms towards Kathy and pulled her close, so close that Kathy's face was pressed into Marilyn's ample breast. I was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. Listen to that. You're going to be okay. You're with us now. We've got you. All you have to do is keep coming. Just keep coming back. Because every time you're here, we've got you. Hear me? Keep on coming. Then Marilyn kissed Kathy's head. He said, I was awestruck. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness, how Jesus-like. And he said, I couldn't avoid a troubling question that morning. Could this have happened in the places where I have worshipped? AA nails this issue. And AA isn't necessarily Christian. There are a lot of people who see Jesus as their higher power, but you know anything could be your higher power in AA, so it's not necessarily theologically accurate, but a lot of people do interpret it through Christian thinking. 
but they've nailed the issue of loving community. The church had it first. The church could now learn a lot from AA. They keep the main thing the main thing, 12 steps. There's total acceptance. There's loving community. They let people fail, and they let people get up. The church isn't very good at that, letting people fail and get up. Never underestimate the power of loving community or the third place. Second, conversion is both spiritual and sociological. So include people in your lives who need Jesus. Now, I've talked about this before. I gave some statistics earlier, but all I want you to hear from me is this. When people become Christians, I said this recently, I don't even know what the sermon was about, but when people become Christians, there have been studies on this. It takes a very short time before they lose all of their non-Christian friends and become a part of the Christian camp. And that is a normal sociological event. What I think God wants us to do is to always keep a leg in both camps. Because the people who are outside of faith need that connection to Christians to come to faith. We don't want to leave those people and just join with a bunch of Christians, as wonderful as you are. We want to always have a leg in both camps so we can always be a part of being that sociological bridge for those who don't know Jesus. So the question is, who in your life needs Jesus that doesn't know him, that you can stay connected to and be a good friend. So when their life is coming apart a little bit, you're there with some answers. Third, loving community inherently requires a distinction between core beliefs and non-essentials. This isn't taught in the passage. It is taught in the New Testament. Do you know there have been studies done on Christians that have found that we're actually... Now, I don't think this is true anymore because with a woke society and cancel culture, the world around us is incredibly judgmental. I mean, it's, it's just nasty out there if you're going to believe anything except for whatever they want you to believe, whoever they are. But before that, Christians have been studied and surveyed and we tend to be viewed as more judgmental than the rest of society. Did you know that? And I think one of the reasons is because we believe we have God's word and we have truth. The problem is we need to figure out how to have truth and be loving with it, and we don't do a good job of that, which is why the church is not attractive to much of the outside world. We appear to be the judgmental ones. Man, at the early church, they had a hard time doing a potluck. They they didn't know what to do with meat that was sacrificed at pagan temples because most meat was sacrificed at pagan temples and then it was sold in the marketplace. They couldn't agree on that one. There were all kinds of debates. The early church did not agree on everything. They didn't. If you have an idea or a view that unity happened in the early church, it didn't. Read the epistles. They couldn't get along that well on a lot of issues. But they had some core beliefs like the resurrection and what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection meant to salvation. They agreed on those things. And if you didn't agree on that, you, you know, like if you caused problems and undermined that, you'd be disciplined out of the church in the early church. Read the book of Romans. Anyone causes division because of the doctrine I've taught you, basically Paul said, get rid of them. Can't be in the church. Can't be undermining true theology. But their theology was limited to some key issues. There was a lot of disagreement about the non-essentials. Churches don't do a good job of that. I grew up in a church where you had to agree on everything or you didn't belong. That is incredibly unhealthy and it's not biblical. There's room for some debate about some non-essentials. Now, what's a non-essential? That's a good discussion. But there's room for us to disagree. 
We don't want to be a place where everyone has to agree with everything or else somebody becomes a new Christian and we send them into a, a connecting group with a bunch of people who've known the Lord for 40 years and they've got some pretty well-developed opinions about stuff. How will that person be accepted and embraced as they're trying to figure out their way in this new faith for them? We need to let some differences exist and, and let some people grow along the way and fail. It requires a distinction between core beliefs and non-essentials. And finally, everyone can be great at this. Everyone can be great at this. One of the things that we've done as a church that's really aided in this is our family nights on Friday nights. I hear incredible things about them. I probably should show up sometime for one. I'm usually studying, all right, I am. My wife can witness. But our Friday nights are places where new families are coming and connecting and it's just organic and immediate. And then they end up here on Sunday mornings. Sundays, the way people stay after church, the way they connect for you know, 1, one thirty. there's still people talking, getting to know each other. It's awesome. It's a great part of our culture. Connecting groups are, are, it's something we're a little behind in because we have so many new people coming into the church, but it's an area we really need to emphasize. So people have this third place, as Jay was talking about, this new connecting group that he's involved in and he's so excited about because we, we get to be with people as they're growing and questions are answered and they're, they're excited about their faith. And everybody can do this. In Outlive Your Life, Max Lucado writes, Long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. Even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as the primary tool of the church. The primary gathering place of the church was the home. Consider the genius of God's plan. The first generation of Christians was a tinderbox of contrasting cultures and backgrounds, and at least 15 different nationalities heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Jews stood next to Gentiles. Men worshiped with women. Slaves and masters alike sought after Christ. Can people of such varied backgrounds and cultures get along with each other? We wonder the same thing today. Can Hispanics live in peace with Anglos? Can liberals find common ground with conservatives? Can a Christian family carry on a civil friendship with a Muslim couple down the street? Can divergent people get along? The early church did. Without the aid of sanctuaries and church buildings and clergy or seminaries, they did so through the clearest of messages, the cross, and the simplest of tools, the home. Not everyone can serve in a foreign land or lead a relief effort or volunteer at the downtown soup kitchen. But who can't be hospitable? Do you have a front door? Do you have a table? Do you have chairs? Do you have bread and meat for sandwiches? Congratulations. You just qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries called hospitality. Something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you see the backs of heads. Around the table, you see the expressions and faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock, usually, not here. Around the table, there's time to talk. Hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. It's no accident that hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word. They both lead to the same result, healing. When you open your door to someone, you are sending this message. You matter to me and you matter to God. You may think you're saying come over for a visit, but what your guest hears is, I'm worth the effort. Everyone can be great at this.
And we all should be great at this. Looking for opportunities to include people in our lives so that we're part of the bridge for them to come to faith. And looking for opportunities to include people in our lives who are believers so they experience the love of God through the body of Christ. God, we thank you for your word. And we've all got busy lives. We've all got plenty to do, and there's so many other things that are waiting to distract us whenever we have a moment where we don't have something to do. And a lot of those distractions have replaced people and relationships, and we're, we're, we're often fine with that. But the reality is we are robbing ourselves and we're robbing others of the community that is necessary to being who we're intended to be and it's necessary for many to be able to bridge to faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would help us to prioritize other people in our lives, people in the body and people outside of the body of Christ so that we can function like the church was intended to function. Help us to be those people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.